And that really solidified for me kind of thinking through like, what do I want to build? Do I want to continue with Rogue, Rogue Women? Do I want to try to go join a larger firm? I know the challenges and hurdles of being an investor in venture period, much less being a woman, much less being a woman trying to invest in women. Like I'm very aware of all those challenges. Um, and so at the end of the day, there is a few things that I really thought about. Like I'm just at a point in my life where if I'm going to do something every day, I want to really care about it. Like I want it to be everything and anything. The only thing I want to do, um, especially if I'm going to take time away from my family, like it better be extremely important. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode, we have a fellow VC investor and a good friend of mine. I am so excited to welcome to Found in the Rockies, Caroline Lewis, who is the managing partner at the Rogue Women's Fund. Good morning, Thank Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to see you. Great to I, be on the show. I'm so excited to have you. And, you know, as a friend, we met probably like, it feels like a decade ago. It was like six or seven years ago at Techstars. Yeah, but, yes, almost six years ago. Yeah. And, but I mean, it feels like forever. And I got to say, you know, I got a lot of, ch- I have a lot of check-ins with, you know, VCs and stuff. I, you are one that I always look forward to because I know it's going to be a fun call. <laughs> well, I, know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, that's a good thing. Yeah. No. I mean, it's so uh, no pressure, but I think this is going to be a fun episode. I'm just saying it. Out of the I get off on my like esoteric rants, which I got to reel in sometimes. But yeah. <laughs> that's okay. This is found in the Rockies. We love that. So feel free to let it go. Anyway, before we begin with just getting into the amazing work you're doing, I'd love for you to start and just kind of tell your background, tell your story. Where'd you grow up and what kind of led you on this path to to venture? Yeah, I'll try to make it short, but I'll start from kind of, I grew up in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, grew up on a farm, which I actually think is, anybody who grows up on a farm is pretty good because you just learn how to work. Like, you know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a rare, it's rare that you see those skills nowadays. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was a horse farm. It was great. And then I went to school, Davidson College down in North Carolina. Most people only know about it. You know, Steph Curry. Went there. I was going to say it, but I let like, you say it. Yeah, my claim to fame is <laughs> I went to a school that Steph Curry went to, right? By uh, the way, my, my brother-in-law was a Davidson graduate. Amazing school. And my, my nephew is there right now. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those places. It's super small, but once you when you know people who are went there, it's pretty cool. Anyway, liberal arts school. Everybody was either investment banker, doctor, lawyer when they graduated. So I thought, okay, I'll be a lawyer. Went to work in a law office. Well, first of all, I should say just because you know, given the episode, I did graduate early just so I could be a ski bum in Utah. Uh, oh, for the, yeah, for the remainder of my senior year, I was a ski bum in Utah and I graduated early just so I could do that. I went back just for graduation. But anyway, I went to, I went and worked in a law office that summer studying for my LSATs and realized I had absolutely zero interest in being a lawyer. And so I had one of those first moments of like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with my life. And one of my good, my best girlfriend at the time, she was overseas teaching English in China. She's like, hey, I think you make a great teacher. I know you love to travel. Why don't you do this while you figure whatever you're doing out? So I went over, I actually got a really good gig back then in South Korea teaching English. So I did that for a year. Everything, all expenses paid, everything was awesome. 
and then sent everything back home and traveled around Southeast Asia for another year where I implemented a mobile teaching program. And I bring that one up because that was a key moment. Two things I think have really helped in what I've decided to do in my life. One, I realized how important community is to me. Like I need to feel that sense of like, how am I contributing or giving back to the place in which I am? And then two, there's nothing like being in foreign countries where you can't even like read the alphabet that really helps you hone in your own intuition, especially when you're traveling by yourself, right? Like, yeah, I've been to, I've been to South Korea. Yeah. And I remember like my, I was in Daegu and kind of Seoul. I was visiting my sister there and I remember I'm like, oh, I'm starving. I'm going to go to a restaurant. It's like, I have to point at the plastic food thing to order because I like nobody understands me. It is. I mean, especially where you were. Yeah. Very real experience. Yeah. And I always say like, that would be the best test to hire anybody onto a team, right? Drop them in the middle of the country somewhere and see like, can they figure it out? Because if they can, they're probably going to be a great hire. I love Um, it. It's just really humbling, right? Like there's nothing more humbling than being in a foreign country, no matter how like accomplished or smart you are, where you got your pointing to pictures, right? And you're like using the hand signs. So anyway, so I did that. And then I decided to come back to the U.S. I landed in uh, West Virginia. And that's on the personal side. I'll say uh-huh. that one more time. But and I ended up working for this woman. She ran three companies. I was working at her third in a very like, you know, junior receptionist type role. I decided to go above and beyond and like help them win a pretty big client. And she was starting a fourth company. And she said, hey, do you want to help me start this fourth company? Young, hungry, said, yeah, let's do it. Didn't even ask like about co-op or anything. It was just like, yeah, it sounds great. You were just like, drop me in the wilderness. I'll figure yeah, this yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There, you'll see that theme kind of throughout my story. So anyway, I worked for her and I loved every second of it. Like I was cold calling. I was doing the accounting. I was working on market. Like I was just everything and I loved it. I was like, this is incredible. I'm obsessed. Also though, if I'm going to work this hard, I want to do it for myself. So I... Yeah. So I did that for a little bit and then I wanted to get my MBA, start my own company, ended up moving out to, of all places, Oregon. It was very random. thought it was going to be four years. We ended up staying out here in the Oregon, Washington area, so Pacific Northwest now for, I think we're on like year 16. Wow. But anyway, I got my MBA. Portland State, right? You went to Portland State for your MBA? Great. So I got my MBA, started a company in the kind of e-commerce space, customization space. It was great. It was profitable, but just, you know, wasn't like this high growth tech startup. And I really want to get more into tech. Yeah. What led you to, I mean, because so far you haven't really touched on a whole lot of e-commerce. To me, that's like, seems like another big leap, but like what led you to pursue? I always like those, the inklings, especially when we hear it from a VC, like that's, that is an operator. Like what led you to start something in that space? Oh yeah. So at the time, and I still think these trends are relevant even more so at the time. So this was back in 2000, oh God nine 2009 and at the time i was just recognizing that people really wanted that sense individuals consumers wanted that sense of customization of something unique but also connected to like where they are so that idea of like local but also customized but then also operationally like you need to be able to make something at scale and i think at the time was just it was more of like how do you get directly to consumers like i'm not dealing with like the whole retail all that Mm -hmm. stuff so essentially what i built out was The ability where like each city, local designers would upload their kind of designs. And on the back end, I knew that they could be kind of scaled up with some minor customization. People would vote on their favorite ones. So you kind of got like the user engagement and community. And then you also had a sense of how much was going to be ordered. Because with each vote, then people would say like whether or not they would buy it. 
right? So you start to handle like demand planning a little bit better and yep. just have, looking for operational efficiency, but with that feeling of customization on mobile. And so that's kind of essentially the business I ran was like, you get to the vote on your favorite designs and then you get to make some slight customizations to it. So it was like an e-commerce fashion type thing. Yeah, it's kind of like Etsy and Fiverr and kind of like a Yeah, a nice yeah. there's a lot of more of- and I actually carry a lot of those forward. There's also a lot of things that were not highly scalable about it. You live and learn. You do, I mean, you I do. Ended up, I ended up wrapping up that business and I wanted to go into tech and Hitachi Consulting was hiring and so I went into them and ended up kind of just working from the ground up, right? Like I was a, you know, UA, you know, most quality tester like back in the day, like just like testing code. I also joke with people like I was doing that at a time when agile was like this new phenomenon. <laughs> like where when it was like the, we the new kids waterfall. don't know anything other, you know, it's yeah, like, like waterfall. Huh? Yeah, What's that? Like, yeah, that dates me for sure. So anyway, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the consulting space, management consulting, really focused on tech implementations, worked my way up the ranks on that one from the bottom all the way to the top doing large implementations. Nike was a big client of mine at one point. And then, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid. They recruited me to go in-house with them. And I said yes. And For really high achievers that live in Oregon, isn't there just like a gravity? Like, does the Death Star pull you in? Kind of, maybe that's... Yeah, yeah. I'm not worth your hand. Like, you don't leave. Like, you just are in this, like, weird Nike bubble. It's crazy. Nike, the Nike Kool-Aid is delicious. It's very... very <laughs> They're very good at branding, as we all know, and really good at branding internally. But at the end of the day, they're just like any large corporation, right? I mean, they're yeah. not the global politics, lots of structure. You know, it's slow. It's it's like any large corporation, which I realize is not for me. So anyway, so I worked there for a little bit and ran a pretty large portfolio, global strategy and operations. So multiple teams across multiple countries, just landing some big work, cool. which. Also, it's relevant to my investing things. One of those things like you invest in what you know, but if you know too much about the space, you hate investing in it. Nothing's good enough, right? It's like, like, oh, I've seen this before. Every time I look at data projects, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." because I mean, one of my multiple projects were landing essentially like complete data re-engineering and implementation within Nike, but then other companies I worked for. So I just doubt all data projects, like all data companies. I'm like, hey, shitty data in and shitty data out. Like, I don't yeah. know. I don't care what you're doing in between. And so much of it's anyway, human behavior. But so anyway, that was in Nike. And then ultimately, I just was in my early 30s and I wanted to get back to startup life, which is definitely not like Nike, right? So yep. I thought, okay, well, I'm not really sure I'm going to get back there. I want to start my own company and have like a brilliant idea. So I thought, okay, I'll start angel investing, but I need to learn about investing. And I joined a couple of angel groups locally. And then I reached out to this guy, Tom Sperry, who ran Rogue Venture Partners or runs Rogue Venture yep. Partners. There's only like total of 10 firms in Washington and Oregon and venture. And he re- he runs Rogue Venture. So I had met him when I was getting my MBA. We always stayed in touch. And then I reached out. I was like, I will learn everything I can about investing from you. And it was really great because we met a few times. And he essentially was like, what the hell are you doing? I, you know, I would propose some investments. He's like, no, <laughs> no, like, how are you going to get your return on that? Right. Um, again, no, like, thank I, God. Thank goodness. I have somebody like, watching me over from over my, over my yeah. shoulder. So, yeah. Well, I think what a lot of people would do when they first start investing, including angel investors, you end up investing. I always talk about this when I'm talking to, you know, people who want to get interested in angel investing or just start is like, mm-hmm. it's good because you invest in what you like yep. and generally what you know. 
But just because you like the business does not mean it's going to be a good investment. Right. right. Like there's a good business and then there's a good investment. And what you're looking for is the magical combination of both. Yeah. Um, I find it too. It's almost uh, more uh, emotional. Like they're more emotional decisions, less quantitative. I mean, even like the qualitative assessment usually has like 99% emotion and like 1% like, oh yeah, there was a good pro forma uh, financial model. It looked good. First one. Yeah. 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 Well, especially early stage investing, right? Like it's, yeah, it's so much you have to invest in the people. We can get into a lot of things we learned. But anyway, so I learned a lot from him. And then in doing that, they were raising a fund three. They had a lot of, had a ton of success with funds one and two, really early success too. And so Tom essentially was like, hey, do you want to come on board? And kind of, you know, true to my nature, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Didn't even ask questions. <laughs> nice. There's a theme. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so I jumped in with Rogue and it was awesome. And then they kicked off Fund 3 in that first year. And then Tom, how we got into Rogue Women was Tom had come back from a conference. This is, I think, right, right around the time that I probably met you. But Tom had come back from a conference and had learned just like how deplorable the numbers were when it came to investing in women. And he was really personally motivated. He's like, I want to do something in this space. He said, Caroline, take a look. Like your strategy ops, like. What does this space look like? Can we do something? So I spent about six months to a year to understand the landscape when it came to venture and investing. A lot of things hold true today still that were true six years ago, which is kind of a sad and still an opportunity. But, mm-hmm. you know, the numbers have ticked up a little bit. But in general, you know, 92% of all decision makers in venture are uh, Caucasian cis men. And I think 80% of them have all gone to the same exact schools. Yeah. Not 10 schools, right? So it's to be proud of. They're, well, but it's, it's yeah. just one of those things that like, again, we invest in what we know and feel right. familiar, right? Like whether it's industry, demographics, like the more mm-hmm. something feels familiar, the more that we're going to invest in it, especially early seed stage or pre-seed. So it just kind of perpetuates itself. It's a really tough cycle to break. And it's also one of those things like so much of venture, even not on the investing side, but building a firm, as we both know, is kind of who's in your, who do you trust, right? Like who right. do you know and trust? but you go to people in your network. And so it's really tough to like break outside of your network to change that cycle in the demographics anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just like any sort of business opportunity, when we look at the macro stats around women, you know, women make up 51% of the, dem- you know, dem- our demographic here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, women-led businesses growing at a rate of 46% or sorry, 46% of all U.S. businesses are women-led growing at a rate of 112%, women graduating more than men from secondary education. So there's all these kind of macro trends to show that, you know, women are coming more predominantly in the workforce, especially starting their own businesses and with much higher degrees of education overall. And then when we looked at the stats, which even existed at the time um, from McKinsey and some other funds that had measured their portfolios, women in general outperform. I think that one is like around 47% higher returns, higher sales. So there's all the stats to show that and much higher return on your investment in terms of multiples. Mm-hmm. We're still lower valuation necessarily, like a company might be selling it less, which is a bummer, but from an investor standpoint, much higher multiples yeah. and much higher success rate. So lower failure rate, which in the world of venture and any sort of business, I was like, well, you know, I, this is an opportunity to do the right thing, but also make a lot of money, right? Like if, if you know, a ton of people are crowding one space like AI right now. You're like, well, it's really crowded. Valuation is going to go up. It's just too competitive, right? Exactly. But if you see a wide open space where you know the market, you're familiar with the market, 
and you can be a predominant player in the space, then why not go there? And there's, there's alpha. Go go to the alpha. Yeah. Right. So at that time, it was kind of there was about 10 total firms that had an exclusive focus on investing in women. That's including some angel groups. And now Wait, I think like how many? 10. 10 firms? Yeah. And I think we're up to 20 now. Okay. Uh, in all the US, right? Well, we've like, doubled. That's good. Yeah. Imagine if there was only 20 firms focusing on AI right now, right? Like, yeah. And that's across that's, the stack. That's like that's, unbe- that's an unbelievable statistic. I would have guessed 10 times that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more firms, especially in the past three years, focused on yeah. like diversity or lots of sure, sure, more sure, women sure. GPs coming into yeah. play and they invest yep, more yep, yep. women. But exclusively investing in women is, yeah, about 20. Wow. And that's including like the angel groups. That's including right. firms that in, like invest in Series B, right? So. Yep. There's only one other group, that, two other groups I would say that I'm familiar with that exclusively invest in women at early seed stage. Okay. Wow. Well, so, so that's got to be a tight, tight community that you're Yeah, you're, it's super yeah, tight. And, and, you know, like, that's a great opportunity to invest. So shared all of that data with my partners, Tom and Adam, and said, hey, I think we should have a fund just to invest in women for three main reasons of the time, which has slowly evolved differently. One, it's also about like getting more women as investors. So only about 4% of all investors in venture funds are women. So if you really want to change the cycle, you got to get more women investing too. And I wanted a lower minimum. Just lower minimums are easier for people who are first-time investors in venture, right? Oh, interesting. And when you say 4% of all investors, you're talking about limited partners. Yeah, sorry, limited partners in venture funds. Yeah, great clarification. Interesting, okay. And then in addition to that, you know, I thought, well, this is great. We'll go a little bit earlier than Rogue's main fund too. So we'll kind of be a feeder fund to Rogue's main fund. Mm-hmm. And then, because we'll be kind of the first check-in, institutional check-in. And then three, at the end of the day, I'm a big believer. Like if you want to do something, if you want to make a change, go all in, right? Like, yeah. just like, again, if you're like, hey, I want to invest in some healthcare, but you're just adding like a small portion of that to your portfolio. It's great. You're investing in healthcare, but it's going to be like 20, 30%, right? right? But if you're like, I want to make a debt in the healthcare investing, like in the, do an entire fund against it, right? Just right. go all in. So that's kind of how I felt when I came to, and let's invest in women. We think the opportunity is there. Let's go all in. And that was the genesis of Rogue Women, which was we did a first close on that end of 2019. So Q4 2019. I know. Well, con- yeah. Congratulations. It's Thank amazing. you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such, I, you know, you listen to the, you listen to the journey. I mean, and we've known each other for years. Like I said, I, there's a piece of that story I never even knew, which is awesome. But such a such an incredible. You, you often find like you look backwards at it, right, and it all makes sense. But yeah, but, so random. Like yeah, I feel like I'm, I've been on the jungle gym. I'm not like the investment banker gone into venture, and I'm not a straight operator gone into venture. I like have my little ADHD career. But all of those things have really, I think, added to a cumulative way that just like really parlays into how I invest and how I think about things. And then Absolutely. how it's evolved is like fund one is kicking ass and doing well. And then, you know, COVID hit all of us. I think a lot of people, even for your listeners, like if anybody didn't have like a moment of reflection during COVID, I think, you know, I don't know where you were, but I think we all had a moment of reflection. I became a first time mom to a little girl at that time. Amazing. It was just kind of at that point too, like in in anything you're doing, like, okay, what's, who am I? Like, how do I want to show up as investor? Like what's, how do I want to build a firm? What does this look like? And I had the privilege of being part of the Kaufman Fellowship where I got to learn from, you know, some of the top people in the industry, really large firms and well-known ones. And then firms you never heard of, firms from all over the world. And that really solidified for me kind of thinking through, like, what do I want to build? Do I want to continue with Rogue, Rogue Women? Do I want to try to go join a larger firm? I know the challenges and hurdles of being an investor and mentor, period. 
much less being a woman, much less being a woman trying to invest in women. Like I'm very aware of all those challenges. Sure. And so at the end of the day, there is a few things that I really thought about. Like I'm just at a point in my life where if I'm going to do something every day, I want to really care about it. Like I want it to be everything and anything. The only thing I want to do, um, especially if I'm going to take time away from my family, like it better be extremely important, both on a like monetary level, but also just on making an impact in this world. There's nothing like to like having your own children or somehow taking care of the next generation, whatever capacity that is, that really makes you think about what's the world that you're leaving them. So that's really shifted for me. And then of course, COVID, just recognizing that like, you know, we only have like this world once, we only live once. So just do something you want to do. Like I no longer want to work for someone else. Like I want to build what I want to build. I want to invest in what I want to invest. I want to make a shit ton of money doing it. And I want to make more money for women around the world. Like I want women to have more clarity and mission and purpose. I love it. Yeah. Like it's very clear to me. Like I want women to have more power and equality in this world. I believe that comes from financial gains and venture is one of those unique opportunities where you can significantly change people's lives, both on the investor side, the LP side, but also on the entrepreneur side, like that's right. Life-changing wealth. That is the type that you can get into like political donations to start getting into decision-making roles. Right. So yeah. So I became super clear what I'd want to do and told, you know, shared with Tom and Adam, Hey, I want to build rogue women as a separate institutionally backed global investment firm. Like that's what I want to go for. And I want you guys to be my partners. And so they said, all right, we're all in to support you. And so with fun too, that's, really what we're building towards and, you know, take steps to get there, as you know, with your own firm, but yeah, really excited about what we're building. And then starting to think about how to build a firm differently too, right? Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. I want to peel that back before we do though. And I also want to talk a lot more about, about, you know, what you're doing, the types of amazing women founders you're working with, but you're actually, before we go there, you're, you are actually the first VC we've had on the podcast from the Pacific Northwest. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's so I would I would love just to just to, let's do a couple minutes and just talk about because you you mentioned a little bit about some of the angel groups in the seed capital in Oregon and Washington, how there's not a ton of it there, but like maybe just talk about the ecosystem there. Cause I we often hear it's kind of a connected, you know, there's connective tissue between Oregon and Seattle and you know, like what just tell us a little bit about the ecosystem and, you, and your take on it. Yeah. So I think probably similar to what you guys have experienced in your area, you know, we call it the flyover states, right? Where you have the gravity in the Bay Area and people, you know, fly to kind of enjoy their lives in the Oregon, Washington, Pacific Northwest area. It's absolutely gorgeous here. But what we see, especially up in Seattle with Amazon and Microsoft, you know, some big, big hubs there. There's a lot of great talent, especially because they've been there for a while, it has started to really peel out, build amazing companies. So we have some OG firms like Madrona up in Seattle. We have, and then Oregon Venture Fund, Rogue Venture Partners, Portland Seed Fund, all in Oregon. Mm-hmm. They started all around the same time back in 2007, 2008 timeframe. Mm-hmm. And they kind of came out of angel groups and then morphed into funds, especially Oregon Venture Fund, which still operates more like an angel group, but has a solid fund behind it. Yep. And then Elevate Capital and Cascade are two additional funds in Oregon. Um, there are some, and then or, Women's Venture Fund, which is the best later stage, but there, that's kind of the sprinkling of funds in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And then in Washington with Madrona, we've seen, you know, Pioneer Square Labs peel out. Shout out to Acquired, you know, podcast because if people don't like that's awesome too. It's just yeah. the of like how companies get acquired. And then some really great angel groups up there too. Some focus on environmental 
AOA um, is up there. And then we've seen Flying Fish develop out of that and some um, mm-hmm. other really great kind of smaller funds um, peel out Ignition Capital and then the folks built Fuse out of Ignition. So mm-hmm. we've been seeing kind of that, I would say, kind of the original firms that started um, kind of matured and grew up, invest in later stage rounds like Madrona. Still, they still do seed, but they also invest in later stage rounds. And then from that, people who were at those firms or graduated from investment from those companies and then sold those companies and then coming back in the ecosystem have built smaller, newer firms that are also growing. So I would really say- Really quite developed, quite established ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, right? you know, compared to the Bay, no. Well, but yeah. Well, what is? What compared, is? Yeah. Compared to yeah. a lot of places, like it's definitely quite, a, you know, when you combine yeah. both of them, I think there's quite a few options. You know, I think some of the challenges is you don't have quite the velocity of startups and then sure. people who graduate from the startups doing a lot more angel investing. So it's still hard to get a lot of angel investing, kind of that early mm-hmm. investing or like the series B high growth investing in those areas. I so see. there's still some gaps. I think there's gaps in terms of funding that goes into the venture funds in that area. But I think it's evolving and growing. And I think it's a really awesome ecosystem. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, close to the ecosystem. So I think it's great, but I think what's a great opportunity. And this is how I feel in general about any places outside like the Bay and New York, you know, but Austin is you find founders that because capital is not as readily available as some of those other places, they just have more hustle, more grit. Yeah. Right? Like, there is a lot to be said where, you know, the restraint of capital can be limiting, but it mm-hmm. also can be really creativity driven in terms of like, you don't, you can't afford just to buy your market. You have to iterate. You have to figure out what actually sells. Otherwise you die. And I, I think that builds much more resilient company, which from an investor standpoint, I think is a great opportunity when you can invest in a resilient company and help get them to that point, they're so much more capital efficient. And by the time that they're hitting kind of like their series A or that next growth period, they're actually like, they got something real that they're selling, right? Yeah, the capital, when the capital efficient growth is in your DNA from the beginning and it gets you to those growthy, to, you know, growthier milestones, like it's just so much better so going forward, right? Either. And just yeah. the founder, like, you know, we are in the business of investing in people, right? I mean, yeah. you do have invest a little bit later stage than I do, but when pre-seed, early seed stage investing, like that's, you know, so many things change about the product, the market, what you're doing, right? So you really got to invest in people that just have, can have that magic, right? And resiliency. And so that's something that I think when you look at the Pacific Northwest market, when you look at your market, when you look at these kind of flyover areas, you really see that. And I think it makes a much more resilient portfolio overall. And I believe that with COVID, because I used to get from LPs, like, how do, can you even be an adventure investor if you're not in New York or the Bay, right? And I was like, should I just like put a PO box in the Bay and call it good? <laughs> but I think with COVID, a lot of people realize there's so much potential outside of the markets for some of the exactly. reasons we've talked about. And I think that we're seeing that grow even more in the Pacific Northwest. And I think overall, just the landscape of the U.S. and where you can invest and how you can invest with people being remote first is going to really it's going to shake up the idea of like investing only locally but we'll see how that materializes over over time yeah well and i and i think about oregon as a place i did a family road trip we did the oregon coast uh, a couple years ago and like talk about an amazing place to live like, I, yeah 
Like, you know, I, I granted I found Montana first, but still, I mean, it's a close second, I would say. I mean, I agree. Montana is absolutely breathtaking as well. And if you are a person, like I believe you are, that loves all the outdoor activities, yeah. man, it's fun to be in the Pacific Northwest or in Montana. Yeah. I, like, sure. it's just, it's a playground. Awesome. So you heard it here on Found of the Rockies, a great place to start a company with a great ecosystem. You know, yeah. think Oregon, maybe. If yeah. You're, yeah. If you're thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Oregon. I mean, a shout out to, you know, Idaho, you know, Montana and all the other. It's, it's it's a good place to set up a company in the Pacific Northwest and the Western Hemisphere. It's it's awesome out here. Yeah. You don't right. have to be in California anymore. <laughs> yep. All right. It's out. The word is out. Yeah. Let's talk about Rogue, the Rogue Women's Fund. First of all, the name, this always intrigues me because there's a lot of rogue stuff in Oregon. There's the, there's the beer, there's rogue. Like when I think of the word rogue, I think of like, you know, like a dishonest person. Yeah. Well, it's like people that stray from the herd or like, yeah, like, well, where does, where does it come from? Where does the name come from? Yeah. So rogue, there's the rogue river in Oregon. Like you mentioned, there's also the rogue brewery, great beer. Um, actually Thomas Berry, the managing partner of rogue venture partners knows the owner of rogue brewery. They're pretty close. And, um, I think they were hanging out and Tom mentioned he was going to build rogue and they talked and he's like, you know, very different industries. Right. And so yeah. I think that was kind of the, a little bit of the inspiration, but it I also ties, it also ties to the fact that, you know, especially the nature of anything that we do and how I kind of live my life, but also in what we want to invest in is the rogue entrepreneur, the person yeah. who's not doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. Right. Yeah. So it was very fitting. And then even more so when we developed rogue women, it was like, yeah. I mean, that's who I want to invest in as a rogue woman, like the person who's not just following the playbook. Like I'm not that person and I want to invest in other women who are just not, they're pushing the boundaries, right? That's awesome. It's so So fitting. Like it all, it all fits super well. Yeah. And I didn't, and you said there's a river. I didn't realize that that's probably where rogue brewing comes from, from the river. Is that right? I'm not, I I can't go out on that before, but yeah, the rogue is actually a great river to run. Didn't know that. a small fact, I didn't know I was a river guide for five summers yeah. there you go i had, had no idea so i can also take you down some class three and class four rapids too. I, I i would trust you but i don't know if you would want me in the boat because like, you gotta save I each had, other right commercial trips i had i had to handle the bachelor parties where people like i literally oh. made someone i wear i made people wear helmets on their head even though they were in a warm boat because i was like you are too intoxicated that if you fall out you need to at least have your life jacket and a helmet on because <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I knew you played Division One field hockey. I knew yeah. that, but I didn't yeah. realize you were you were. I mean, this is even more paramount of probably athletic ability and and you know. Well, it was because when you're a Division One hockey player or a Division One player, you have to if you, your seasons in the fall, you have to go back a lot earlier than you. So it's anyway, it's really difficult to get internships because you have to be back oh, early. Uh, and I also wanted to keep my physical yeah you know, health up for preseason, which is brutal, especially in North Carolina. So. I had gone raft guiding as a little girl and went out and did the Colorado and Green Rivers during the summer as a raft guide during the college years. You so embody Rogue in so many different ways, Caroline. I'm sorry. I got to say it. I love it. Tell us about the fund and tell yeah. us about some of the amazing founders you've backed. Yeah. So I'll go with kind of the evolution of where we are with fund too. So a few different elements. So fun too, we're going, you know, $30 million firm. We have much in 
higher ambitious plans for subsequent funds after this. Some great institutional partners already invested, so really happy about that. And true to our mission from Fund One, we are dedicated that over 50% of our investors identify as women. And in Fund One, that was, I think, around 65% right now, between 50 and 70% for Fund Two. And there's a lot of different ways in which we kind of kind of address that and tackle that. So I'm really proud of that element. And then for fund two, our thesis has pretty much stayed true to fund one, just some, you know, we all live and learn a little bit from when we invest. And so with fund two, really focused on B2B SaaS and enterprise tech companies, early seed stage. So that company that, you know, first to second generation of tech is built out, ideally mm-hmm. making some revenue in lieu of revenue, much higher kind of usage or kind of line of sight to what that revenue looks like. And I would say at that stage, as you know, it's, it's sometimes we're the first institutional check-in, sometimes maybe the second one. Lots of times we're partnering with other smaller funds or angel rounds, companies raising anywhere 500 up to 3 million. So that's what we're focused on right now. Those are our core investments. And we also- yeah. Important stage and gap to fill in the industry, period. And I feel like a lot of firms, you know, first time kind of emerging managers, they, you start there, right? But people don't stay there. And I would, I, am I wrong? No, you're right. You're people don't. Uh, and, and, I, and it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's a little frustrating to me because it's like, there's great people in that space, but then they raise a fund. It's too big. They can't do that anymore. But I would say it's hard too. That's another reason why probably people don't stay there. It's really hard. It's really <laughs> tough. Well, but, because part of the reason that it's, you don't stay there is because if you're building a firm, you want to build a little bigger and bigger fund, yeah, right? You, and if you, you build a bigger ma- fund, you can't invest on, you can't invest you know, 500 million on a $2 million round. You're just, right. you know. And, and just to say it for our listeners, you know, because I, I think even as a founder, I didn't understand this with, you know, with VC funds, but like the way that a fund builds out capacity is through fees. And the way that you increase the fees, you know, the percentages don't re- you typically change. You increase your fees by raising larger funds. That's your operating capital. Like that's how you hire more people. So yeah, to your point, it's like, it's tough to build an enduring firm if you're staying, you know, small. Yeah, I mean, there's not probably time on this thing, but I put a lot of thought and attention to how to build rogue women mm-hmm. in the future that where you could build more AU, like more operational capital to run your com- run the firm, but then also stay within kind of a portfolio modeling and, and fund size that allows you to capture high returns at kind of that early seed mm-hmm. level, which gets really interesting. Probably not as interesting for your listeners, but no, it's all right. it's super interesting. Yeah. But really it goes into how do you kind of build a firm where you can maximize the return possibility in that early seed stage, but then also build a, you know, firm that you can actually grow too. So grow, it's very grow, challenging grow. without necessarily growing the fund specific fund size. Sure. Yep. Is this what you alluded to a little bit earlier in the episode about your, how you're starting to think about new ways to build a firm? Is this it? Is this kind yeah, of- Yeah, I mean, some of that, right. which is, you know, it's it's pretty like basic, but in the world of venture, as you know, it's surprisingly not basic. So most venture firms don't have HR departments, right? They're not like following best practices. <laughs> <laughs> the companies they invest in. Right. But great at their own best practices, right? Internally, like most venture firms, unless they're, you know, the Sequoias and Dreesons of the world, even though I'm sure Sure. they have their own issues, don't really have their own internal processes and everything quite figured out. But now, so the small things, but important things like 
making sure that from the beginning, we really understand the culture that we want to promote within and making sure as part of that culture, how do we anticipate for succession planning, even succession planning for myself, which I'm not planning on retiring from this business for a really long time. I like to, I'm still young. But how do we think about fund four, fund five, where you have kind of the original owners and decision makers of that firm who have so much influence on not just the strategy, but kind of like, yeah, we should do this investment or not. Even if you have an investment committee, those people still really exercise their influence, even if you have junior partners that come in. So how do you align incentives and true kind of operational processes internally that really effectively enable decision making of junior partners and people that you're bringing in? Really importantly, to make sure that aligned incentives as people kind of evolve out so that the strength of your firm and the strength of the decision making really is withheld even as kind of the founding partners start to have less influence or day-to-day. Anyway, and then just things like, you know, full paid parental leave and other aspects, right, which I think a lot of venture firms don't necessarily think about. And then on the founder side, when I was thinking about just like how I want to build a really great company, I'm building a great firm. And just as you want to reward the people that you rely on for success with Mm -hmm. acting in your company, when I thought about that, inspired by Kindred Ventures out of the UK, by the way, to do this, was sharing a portion of GP carry with every founder that we invest in. So that's sharing a portion of the upside of our fund with every founder that we invest in. And then for our core investments, those founders essentially building out how can I mitigate, especially the stage that we invest in, how can I mitigate the mental, emotional, financial, familial burden that every founder feels, but I feel can even be more stressful for women founders or minority founders. Mm -hmm. And so out of our management fee, which as you know, is not a ton, but out of our management fee, we pay for executive coaching for the founder, personal financial coaching. So how do they get their own personal finances aligned? And then also small family stipend as well. I mean, I love, I love the attention to detail on the things that matter, right? No, I'm serious because so often, you know, what in businesses that I mean, sadly, I feel like a lot of the venture venture industry has become quite transactional. It's, and what what happens when you become transactional is you lose track of the important things that matter, like the people, right? When it goes back to like when I thought about the most important thing, right? And we all know everybody says venture; it's a relationship business, relationship, yeah. business, right? On getting in, you know, new investors into a fund, finding great businesses to invest in. Uh, sharing deal flow with other great investors, right? And bringing them in. And if you don't have that personal people side, it's also something when I was doing my own personal reflection, right? Like every founder, we encourage to think about like, what's your secret sauce with your company? But also what's your secret sauce with you? Mm -hmm. And when I thought about, you know, listen, I'm not, I don't have a fund size that can, you know, support a studio, right? So I might be able to help with some connections on hiring or sales, but like I thought about what is it that's my secret sauce. And it's always been the human connection, right? Um, I know my founder's kids' names. You know, it is my founders have received gifts for their children on their birthdays or during certain times. And I feel very deeply and personally concerned about how is that person doing as a whole person? Because I know that if you are building anything, you've got to be doing well as a whole person or feel like you have someone to talk to about that in order to make sure that whatever you're building is also doing well, right? So especially in these early stages. And, and I, you know, you know, in the world of venture, you know, people always say like, you know, what's your unique proprietary deal flow, all that stuff. And I, I'm very honest with potential LPs that 
what I'm what I'm building takes a long time, but it's the people side. It's the true caring and investment in people in multiple ways, practically with some of the things I just talked about, but then also, you know, the intangible ways, both with other investors, with founders, and then continuing to show up in that way. And then eventually that people know and they feel that and they hear about it. And that's what really kind of pays off and, you know, wins you the deals or gets you, gets people coming back. So yeah, it's something I care deeply about. It's really not that novel, like we expect our companies to do it, but yet in the world of venture, that's, it has not been done before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I admire, I appreciate and admire you for really, you know, making a, a firm stand on this and really hopefully being a, a trendsetter for others to follow in a model that, I mean, I think it, it ultimately breeds, you know, success. And I think that will be the telltale. Like, why wouldn't you want to do this? Right. This leads to a better outcome. Right. So, I mean, yeah. if it's someone, hard, but it if someone knows they get that upside in your fund, they're going to recommend good companies to you because they're part of sharing the upside, right? Like, mm-hmm. anyway, so there's a lot of thought that went into it, but so far it's working out really well and really great reaction from founders to it. And it's also the executive coaching, like, has been really great for a couple of companies. <laughs> I'll tell you, we've been, we've actually, it's funny that, that uh, not funny, but I mean, it, it's great that you highlight that on this episode. It's been coming up so much on Found in the Rockies lately. And I, I actually even recently had Scott Walgren, who is an executive coach, on the episode to talk about why it's important. But it's something, you know, we recently talked about at our partner offsite, and it's something that I want to start doing more. Yeah, I could not recommend exactly whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The one for a person who is building a company or is in a high accountability, high responsibility role in their life, they should have a third party person to talk to that's not their spouse, not their BFF. Not an advisor, not an investor. Not a board member. Right, yeah. exactly. So third, exactly. Someone who's like out well, there looking in and helps them to look in. I couldn't recommend it enough. And there's always the sticker shock of like, oh, it's so expensive. Oh, it takes up so much time. Oh, what am I really going to get out of it? But the reality is like you can't afford not to have that clarity of thought and purpose in mind. Like that's what you get. Like yeah. what's that worth? That's worth everything. It's yeah, worth- I mean, if you get to save like two months of revenue growth from having clarity, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and by the way, that's drastic. But what's even more drastic is that two months could be the difference between life and death of the company. Yeah, especially, right? yeah, for sure. Especially what we do. So yeah, yeah, I love it. And then, and you know, I have to say, you know, going back to the rogue thesis, it's proving out. Like it's been so exciting to invest. So I'll, you know, there's. I want to highlight everybody in the portfolio. I, I won't. I that will take too much time, but. You know, I will highlight like we just had a company that so out of the out of Oregon commercial construction space, we invested. I met her through an accelerator before, you know, she essentially taught herself how to code. And her first iteration of her website, her business was essentially like Airtable cobbled together with, you know, right? Love it. Love it. Love it. And bailing wire. Yeah. yeah. I love those first gen. Yeah. And so but I remember, you know, her saying like, hey, here's how big the construct- commercial construction market is. When I saw those numbers, I was like, oh, that's awesome. And she's like, and also there's no tool that exists that really captures kind of all the materials information in one spot, allows people to select, procure all from one place. And she really had this vision. And it's really interesting because like we invested. And I remember like when we went to go do the first round, you know, I try to get some other investors and they're like, I don't know, it's not technical. She doesn't have a technical founder. She's not technical herself. You know, she, you know, they haven't done a business before. Like just the kind of 
the typical I mean, throwaways. Like that's that's I like know, every deal you look like at. All the same things, which have a lot of it's anchored in like truth of like people's past experience. But it's like yeah. so often this the t- very typical hurdles you hear, especially yep. more so if you're anybody who kind of is outside the typical mold of an investor, sure. especially women. And I was just like, I but the markets here, look what they've done already. Like they they have revenue off of like an air table, essentially. Like, let's mm-hmm. go. <laughs> and we led that round, got some other people in. And actually, yesterday that company just signed a series A. So that's, you know, been a little bit. It's in the marketplace, but and yeah. not an easy and time to be pulling down and, series A term sheets, by the way. Yeah. And I think it's, it's gonna be yeah. like on the investment, like a Maybe a twelve back to markup, but wow! Oh, we've come when we came in, right? But but still, I mean, yeah. But I mean, like, most companies are playing for flat really... to like modest step ups right now. Twelve like, X. Here's the cool thing. Like here's the cool thing. I mean, that's on the investment side, but here's the cool thing. This founder is just like talk about tenacious. Yeah. Like always had this really big vision. Like wants to take over the world. So tenacious has had to overcome so many hurdles. Had to overcome times when like we don't know how they you know. Which path of revenue is going to work? Like multiple paths that we've tried and, you know, I've seen her try, you know, all sorts of, you know, different employee things, growing the team, working with the team just has overcome so much. And then this past uh, year and a half, she really hit kind of that, that growth. She's always been capital efficient, right? But then she hit capital efficiency and high growth, like 11x growth in one year. And also like the fact that she is profitable right now. So she got to do the raise opportunistically didn't have to raise kind of could choose her own path profitable growing and that's what i say like the type of companies you invest early you invest on the founder the vision the idea the opportunity for a massive business but also it just really is up to them to like keep it going and be tenacious and learn from their environment and be adjusting both from their advisors but also their consumer their market that they're selling into and then the resiliency, the capital efficiency, the profitability, and now actually having something that's just like growth and, you know, it's just growth at this point is so exciting as an investor to see. And it was yeah. like, you know, that was like a perfect example of like, I believe there's an opportunity in this. Nobody else is looking at it. Like, there let's it go. And sure enough, it's proving to work out that's very awesome. well. What a great, thank you for sharing the story and yeah. congratulations to that so, founder. I hope she- She's out there listening as well. It's it's amazing. Not um, all like obviously it's not all of them because the you know the portfolio, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I want as many of my founders to have life changing wealth as possible. So, um, well, please, we'd love to have some of them on the podcast. So please, like, oh, okay, send, yeah. send them our way. We'd love to feature their stories because I'm sure they're amazing. I'm sure they're very rogue stories. They are. We are very. Rogue aren't they stories. usually? I mean, yeah. all we all you'll notice all of this kind of. Be our real selves too because i yeah. try to encourage that right away you don't need to be buttoned up with me because i'm not going to be buttoned up with you <laughs> I, yeah there's one thing i know about you that's it <laughs> yeah and for like two weeks post-birth that i held an investor update and then was like on a board call I was like well i'm nursing my child right now so <laughs> but i'm here like oh, i love it caroline that's yeah. great we got we're just about out of time but i have two quick questions yeah. going to wrap up. So, you know, you, you said some of the stats earlier, 90% of all VCs are men, 97% of VC dollars go to male founders, 86% of startups funded by VCs have only men on their team. What can we all do? Even the men, right? The, even we the need white... men. We need, we love right, right, I, right. Well, what can we do? What okay, can we, we do to help? Gender identity in between men and women too, but yep. um, we need, we, so what can everybody do? I think, you know, 
I would say what everybody can do if we want to fund more women, more minorities, just people who are outside from the the norm is it takes work. Like you just, you have to reach into different networks and actually work hard to reach into different networks. It's not a, it's not that the companies don't exist. It's just that you have to strengthen your ability to connect with those companies. So there's a lot of great accelerators out there that give you at least exposure to companies that are run by different types of people. And then it's really just questioning, like anytime that you're making a decision, which is really tough in in early stage venture, you know, questioning, like when you walk away from an investment, you're like, I don't know, something just feels off. I, you know, I just, that person, I just don't really jive with that person, which usually is not something you actually ever say, but in like your partner reading, you kind of say, is really question like why, right? And it's just usually kind of lack of familiarity. And, mm-hmm. you know, the more that you can introduce more objective measures uh, into your analysis of investing in a company, like we actually implemented, you know, it's nothing too fancy, but it's a scorecard against mm-hmm. 18 different metrics, right? That I make, we make everybody fill out. So you're not just kind of relying on the, does it feel good or not? Right. type of feeling of investment, right? Like is that what's the market? Who are their co-investors? What's the, you know, return profile? Like the, and when you capture, it's fascinating because when you capture that data, I, I would imagine just a hypothesis that typically diverse founders might have a lot more variability in those scorecards. I, I would guess. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So that means that, but Which, like when you actually capture their objective data before you like get into the subjective feeling of things, mm-hmm. what you realize is, you know, you're like, maybe you should make that investment because it's actually looking really, really good. And, and that, that process of seeing that variability might reveal some of those implicit biases that people can then work on. Yeah. But they're I, always I mean, individual. That's what it right? is. Yeah. Like we have, we all have biases. And the hard part is just to be conscious and aware of it and just exactly. start asking the question, right? The thing yep. you can do is start leaning more into where you can find diverse founders, getting more connected. The more you increase your exposure and pipeline, the more like when you're going to make an investment in that space, start to ask really like, why are you making that investment decision or not making that investment decision? And then ultimately, if you are any individual that's in any sort of privileged position, which I recognize I'm in a privileged position as well, really going beyond like, how can I help you in terms of mentoring your feedback and putting real capital, whether that's social capital or financial capital behind helping that person, like legitimately making a connection to your network. That's, that's a huge thing. There's kind of the cost of thing, like underrepresented people are always, you know, over mentored. Right. So it's really about like, putting yourself on the line of some sort of capacity within your privilege standpoint to really help, you know, push that needle forward for someone or a company. That's something we could all do. You know, I try to push myself to do it as well. So, and it's really about having the open discussion and, you know, trying to just make change in ways that you can make change, right? You can't for the world, but like just small things you can do. And usually it starts with just objectively looking at what you are at right now, right? Like mm-hmm. if you look at your portfolio, if you look at your pipeline and only 5% are women founders, you know, what do you, what do you expect on the other end, right? Yeah. That pipeline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So great, yeah. great advice. And definitely something we all need to focus and continue to work on for sure. Yeah. Last question. I always like to, you know, kind of go a little bit personal. I know, and you alluded to this a little bit already <laughs> of nursing on a board call. Yeah. I know you just welcomed another beautiful life into the world quite recently. Yeah. As a VC and a mom, like any advice that you would you have for other women that are aspiring to kind of to, to do it all and balance it all, 
you know, either as investors or founders and, and, you know, being moms. Yeah. I mean, I like to think that we live in a world where, you know, you could say, ask the same thing of men and women. The reality is like, we don't live in that world, right? Where, you know, women, you know, if they have their children are going to take a little bit more, unfortunately, some of that responsibility, especially those first years, not necessarily given, but most likely. And, um, you know, I have found for myself that obviously key things, having an amazing partner. So if you are a partner of a person who is giving birth, you should take on as much responsibility as you possibly. You should never ask, where's the diaper bag or what goes in it? You should know it. You should know the schedule. You should know everything. If you are a person who's leading a business, leading a venture firm, or even in a competent like business role, you should be able to take care of your own children without having to ask your spouse any questions about how to take care of that child. And if you don't, then I doubt your ability to be successful as a business person. That's just my <laughs> I had one guy that was like, oh, yeah, I've only spent like three hours alone with my kid. It was terrifying. I was like, I don't want you to. Three hours? I was like, I don't and want then, then you. Then, you can't handle that. Like, you need and then to he asked, handle that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. And then that—that's the kind of guy that you ask him. Like, he's like, "Oh, I need a diaper. Do you have one?" And you say, "Well, what what size is your child in?" And they're like, "Medium." Again, it goes back to that comment of like throwing someone in a foreign land. Like, I should be able to drop you into a foreign land. You figure shit out. If you can't, I don't want to do business with you. I don't want to invest in you. I don't want you to like be a partner okay. in my life. Like, you should be able to figure it out. And like very much having children is being like being a parent's being dropped in a foreign land, right? So, oh yeah, the most foreign land imaginable. Yeah, good luck. Very humbling experience. Surrender has been like a great motto for me. But the reality oh, is, I think you know, for anybody who, I would say it's integration, right? Like I integrate just like my work and my life together. I mean, yeah. my reality and everybody's reality is going to look different. Is you know, I'm growing a firm and I'm making great investments. I'm absolutely obsessed with what I do. Like I get so jacked from the privilege that I have to invest and work with great people every day, working on incredible ideas. And I also love being a mom and growing a family and like going wake surfing and like seeing these two humans come to life. And so yeah, I had a child and then like two weeks later it was doing an investor update call and was on board calls and that's not everybody's jam but it's you know i think it's about finding any ways that you can that works for you as an individual to integrate both of those things and know that like i it's going to take a lot of help like help from family paid help i outsource a lot of things i also have a partner who is incredible like my partner is just freaking rock star and then the thing is that he's not doing which he does a ton of and really helps too when I have to travel a lot. But we also have a great, you know, nanny, childcare. We just, we have a great support system. And I try to make a living that can uh, support that as well. And, and you know, be forgiving. Like there's times when, you know, I got to say some no to something at work. And there's times I got to say no to something on the family side. Yeah, and and as much as I can, I integrate it. At the end of the day, I think it's really important that whatever people are building, whether it's within their business or on their personal side, that Again, we only get this one life. And like, if you're going to do something every day, you better fucking love it. Right. So you better be and better be putting all of yourself into it. So whether that's growing a venture firm, whether it's building a business, whether it's being a great parent, like do wherever you are, just be the best that you can be in that moment with what you're doing and put 100 percent of your effort into that moment and know that you're going to you're going to have, quote unquote, failures or you're going to have things that don't work out or frustrating times. But at the end of the day. 
you know, the only thing that matters is like when you're 70 or 80 is like how you made people feel, right? Family, business associates, colleagues included, like how you changed lives and made people feel. That's what people remember. People will not remember like how much money you made, how much you, you know, people will remember that. So at the end of the day, just like be human, be honest with yourself, treat yourself well and treat those around you really well. And, you know, that includes your family too. So don't forget about your family when you're building a company. They're just as important. Wow. I mean, what else can we say? I mean, that that's it. We're done with this episode. <laughs> See, this is and where I'm going to go off. By the way, <laughs> I, I, it wouldn't be a call with Caroline without, I was wondering when the F-bomb was going to drop. No, oh, I'm teasing yeah, you. I'm teasing. I'm teasing so you. Bad. I do that. I've done that. A few I was. Times. I'm totally like, teasing you. I love it because you, you, you said it. You better fucking love it, and I love it. That was a good use. That was a perfect use. And you're we're allowed on Found in the Rockies. Oh, okay. good. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's so much fun, and I'm so grateful for you having me on the show. But just really having met you, you guys are. You know, I got to meet you and your partner when you guys were. I think on Find of One. Yeah. That's right. Fun too. We just had raised fun too. Yeah. Okay. And you guys yep. were building and it's just, I remember, you know, you meet people like at conferences and stuff and, you know, you, you, but there's some people that you're like, oh, I, I like want to be friends with that. Like, I like <laughs> those people. They're real. Like, I want to do business with them. I want to be friends with them. Like, they're, they're going somewhere. They're smart. They're smart. They get shit done. And like, I want to be in their realm. I remember that always about you guys. I was like, they're going to build an awesome firm. They're going to be, they are and will be great investors. And I want to be in their, you know, their sphere of influence. So, well, thank you for that. And it's mutual, you know that. (laughs) But uh, I I just want to also just thank you for being on the episode today. Incredible story and amazing work that you're doing. Truly amazing work and meaningful work in this mission that you're on. So I hope that you've inspired other listeners today, other VCs out there to, to, to get on this course with you. And if there's one way to summarize today, I mean, it's you're rogue. I mean, there's nothing else to say but that. And just to conclude, Caroline, why don't you uh, just tell our listeners where they can find more about you and the Rogue Women's Fund online? Yeah, you can. I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably where a lot of my most most of my posts are Twitter, but I'm not very good about it. And then, of course, you can always email at Caroline at RogueVP.com. We also have our RogueWomen.com website up. It's not that great. We'll work on it. But, you know, just trying to be a really good investor first. <laughs> That's important. And you're doing it. So thank you. All right. Well, have a good one. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.